Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Kroll. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through that illusion of separation. I trust something you hear in this next hour will open you to consider the connection between consciousness and performance. Listen to this. Olympic loser. Kind of a curious term to put together, right? Olympic loser. What does that mean? Well, how often do we even think of a high-performance, world-class, elite athlete as a loser. I don't. But with a win-at-all-cost mentality, our guest today's Olympic loss became devastating, disabling him for years as he struggled with identity and despair. Today, after a significant shift in consciousness, Jason coaches a team culture built around compassion, empathy, and love for self for one another, and for their competitors. He inspires many who need to perform at a high level without losing their humanity or their spirit. And now, listen to this beautiful quote. It's like one of my very favorite quotes now. I'll be using it for quite a while, but I love this. Through our inner stillness, we find our highest potential. Beautiful, A. Eh? I invite you to take a few deep breaths. Bring your awareness into this moment. Open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Jason Dorland is an author, Olympian, coach, entrepreneur, and amazing storyteller. I want to underline that. He's an incredible storyteller who has dedicated his life to the pursuit of excellence for himself and those he supports. He is a graduate of the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design, taught high school for 15 years, and is the co-founder of Left Coast Naturals, an organic and natural food manufacturer and distributor in Vancouver. During his 10 years of coaching high school rowing, Jason's crews won 12 international championship events, set a Canadian course record time, and won back to back events with the same four athletes, a feat never before achieved at a national championship. Jason is now sharing his experiences and life lessons through his keynotes and workshops and consults at a high, as a high performance coach for athletes, artists, and executives. He's written his second forthcoming book. We'll look for it this spring. Sex six. Ooh, that was an interesting little error. <laughs> <laughs> six days away. Wow, Jason. Sorry. Yeah. About that. No, sorry. You don't want to mislead people. <laughs> That's right. This is a G-rated show today. Now That's I'm right. so right. excited to have you here today, and and really your book Chariots and Horses is so moving. It's beautiful. I want to make sure that our our listening audience hears the title for that one too. It's really an incredible book. So congratulations on both of those, Jason. Yeah, thanks very much, and thanks for having me here today. Oh, you're welcome. I I've been looking forward to this show, and I've been waiting for this next book and I, I just I love your story I love what you were about 
what you've gone through and just what you have to teach the world. I, in, in my opinion, you have so much to teach everyone, not just high-performance athletes, executives, and artists. So welcome, welcome to our show. But Jason, I have a first traditional question okay. that I like to ans- ask on our um, show to kind of set our conversation into a bigger perspective here. And so can you share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you? Hmm. Well, for me, in my life, all things connected, I, I think um, in terms of high performance, I have an expression where um, I say to people that I work with, you get the performance you deserve. And some people consider that a bit of a harsh um, sort of gut check or reality check. And for me, I just see it as a way of demystifying performance because <clears throat> at the end of the day, the performance that we're able to produce is the byproduct of the work and the focus and the commitment and everything that we've put our energies toward. And so the way all of that is interconnected, to me, just makes sense. There's nothing mystical or magical about producing world-class high performance. It is the byproduct of of world-class preparation and process. So when I hear that expression, it makes complete sense to me because um, the connection between all of the elements that are required for high performance um, at this stage in my life anyhow are, are crystal clear. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what some of those elements are because you're number one, you're a prolific storyteller. I really appreciate how easy it is to really feel through your books. It just is it just flows and it's a page turner. But your story is one of those stories that you do want to turn the pages. So let's start there because mm-hmm. our listeners may not be familiar with your story and you were an Olympic athlete and I would love for us to really feel into the before Olympics, Jason, and then the transformation of after Olympics, Jason. So tell us your story. How did, how did this athlete, how was this athlete born in the younger years and, and moving up to those, those Olympic days? Mm -hmm. Well, that goal of going to the Olympics began at a young age, and I'm going to say six or seven is where that seed was planted. Um, I grew up in an athletic family. I was the baby of four. And I had three older siblings who were very successful athletes. Uh, my grandfather rode, my dad rode, my siblings rode. And I wouldn't say that it was expected of me, but because of the experiences that I had as a young child, um, it's just what I naturally was drawn to. I had the physiologic, physiological gifts, if you will, to, to step into that sport and follow it. So it... Uh, it had been and was a part of my life for a long for a long time. And when I got to high school, when I became a teenager, I was at a school that had a quite a, an international reputation for rowing. And the school was Ridley College, and it was in St. Catharines, Ontario. And my coach was um, was a legend, and he was a two-time Olympian himself. He had. Um, had decades of success as an international coach, high school, and, and uh, at the um, international level for, for national team. And I've considered myself extremely fortunate to be able to row for him. And 
But part of that grooming, part of that coaching was learning an ideology that was combative. It was a combative mindset where I saw it as me against the competitor. And, and for many people who are listening, you know, they sort of might be scratching their head in terms of, well, why is that, you know, why is that unusual? Or why does, why are you even mentioning that? Because th that's pretty much the status quo when it comes to establishing a competitive mindset in North America, anyhow, and that being a combative, a combative one, us against them. And I was raised in that world as an athlete, and I took on that strategy and utilized it to its utmost. And I had a lot of success with it. So when I raced, I demonized my competitor. I made them the enemy. And I saw racing as a battle and a war. And the purpose of that war was to kill and stand as the victor at the end of each race. Um, and it worked. Worked for a long time. And when I got onto the national team, I continued to use that strategy. And in 1988, when I went to Seoul, we, Canada, were the defending Olympic champions. I had been a 19-year-old a when Canada had won in 1984 in Los Angeles at those games. And so I was now a member of that crew with some returning members, same coach, same coxie. And our goal was the same, right? Defend the Olympic title. And uh, we went in there certainly capable of that. And in many ways expecting that. Our, I mean, the, certainly Canada was expecting us to defend. And in our final, we finished dead last. We finished sixth. And it was a moment that I was certainly ill-prepared for. I hadn't even considered the possibility of not winning. And <clears throat> at the time, 1988, there wasn't, there wasn't much dialogue around, um, <laughs> around transition. And the whole notion of a debrief or talking about what losing meant or how it happened just wasn't in the cards. And it certainly didn't happen. We were given tickets to the, some events that followed ours and simply told to be on the plane in a week's time. And we were sort of left to our own devices. And, you know, uh, there was no dialogue. There was absolutely no talk of the race, what went wrong, and how each of us was managing when we got home, on the front page of the national sports section, there was a picture of our eight slumped over our oars at the finish of that race. And the headline read, Canadians bomb out in Seoul. And I was a young man, 24 at the time. And as I said, ill-prepared, right? Um, I didn't know how to deal with losing that, that race, let alone deal with that headline. And that's really where the term Olympic loser became alive in me. As I believe that I began to show up at everywhere I went, I believe that I showed up as an Olympic loser, that that's how people saw me. And the struggles from there on were uh, what we would consider classic now, or textbook in terms of what I went through. So uh, rage, an anger that um, that I didn't that I didn't recognize. Um, there was depression. There was an eating disorder. There was a fixation on um, perfection and um, trying to make meaning 
of my life past the Olympics. So my question that I tried to answer was, if I'm not an Olympian, and if my goal isn't to win an Olympic gold medal, then who am I? And what on earth goal is going to fill that void? And for myself and for so many transitioning Olympians, that question became too much, right? Because the identity of an athlete, of a really good athlete, had been my identity since I was an early teen. It's how I garnered worth. It's how I showed up. And it's who I believed I was. I was tough because I was an Olympic rower. I was good because I was an Olympic rower. And on and on and on. And so now, when that vehicle was now gone, how was I going to attain worth? And, uh, wow, and that journey was... 15 years before I fully let go of the baggage, if you will, that I carried around since that final. And um, in that time, you know, a lot of lessons, a lot of growth, but, um, you know, won't lie, it was a rough ride, for sure. Yeah, just, you know, reading that part of the story and... Um just following through that with you, it I, I think it's really significant for a lot of reasons. I, 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 you know, as you share it with others, in that, you know, coming from that place of that combative mindset and that, you know, how you were conditioned to be as an athlete, how you were conditioned to be the best was so... Um, I don't know what word to use for you, Jason, and put things in there, but it seemed like it was just so rigid and militant, and you were you expected perfection, but it was this interesting mindset. And for me, I know, I think it's a masculine mindset too a lot of times, and of course as an athlete, but I know that my kids were coached that way through high school at times my husband will say things to me like okay well get up and go this is you know get angry use that anger get going you can do it and it's like a whole different strategy than where you are today so I'm really interested in this turning point because mm. it was 15 years of really some dark times for you and, and a big struggle and a, and if many people in our world today are in that place with just looking at life right now, you know, yeah. not even competition, but just, wow, who am I in this world and, and how can I matter? And, and, you know, and there's so much darkness in how we even look at international relationships, racial relationships, cultural relationships, religious relationships. So I'm really, I was really touched by your story of, of meeting Robin and, and I tell you, that's my favorite chapter in the book is where she's telling you, well, I'm not prepared for a race, so I'll just do my best, you know, and I love that chapter and you're going, God, this woman is so, you know, she's, she doesn't got it going on here. So yeah. tell us about that turning point and, and how that, it wasn't instant, it was this really beautiful, endearing story of how you really learned a different part of who you were and a different yeah. part of competition. 
for sure. And, you know, and I have everything to, uh, to owe and thank for, uh, for Robin and for your listeners. Robin is, um, was a middle distance runner back in the day and we were set up on a blind date and it was a week or so before a, a major international track meet. And I asked her quite point blank if she was going to win, how she was going to do. And, and, um, and much to my chagrin and much to my shock, really, she said, well, you know, I'm not expecting much because I've been sick. I'm just going to go out and do my best. And in that moment, I was embarrassed for her because that was the farthest of all the possible answers that I thought she was going to provide me. That was one that, that was, wasn't even on the radar because she was a middle distance runner. She was an international athlete. She was a national team member. And I expected this bravado and, you know, almost cockiness to tell me, what a stupid question. Of course I'm going to win. You know, why would you even ask? And so when I showed up to watch her race and see her start this 3,000-meter race and go right to the back of the pack and be last for, for, for a good part of the race and then eventually just start to, to just almost grow wings and finish second, it, it was it was really the beginning because it challenged everything that I had been taught and that I believed about high performance. And that was that in order to be a world-class athlete, in order to be successful, you had to be cocky and you had to have bravado and you had to be, and your goal had to be to win, period. And here was this woman who set out to just simply be your best and... And she almost won. So it began a long, um, well, a courtship where, <laughs> you know, I was, we, we began dating and I was really in school, if you will. I mean, I would continue to go to these international ev events and watch her race and really be schooled in, in the subject of, of life, but also in how to reach your best. And, you know, as much as that was part of who Robin was, you know, she, she was just this beautiful, grounded individual who was, who ran because she loved running. When I look back at it now, I see the strategy in that, right? As a coach, I see the strategy, right? To me, it all makes sense now. As much as I understand that, that the combative mindset, and as your husband said, you know, get angry and harness that energy, as much as I acknowledge that that does work and can work, I, I now know that it's short-lived and that, it, that it's a limited mindset when it comes to achieving high performance. And so when I saw Robin's approach work for, you know, year upon year of this, well, I mean, to 17 years on the national team. How many athletes last 17 years at world-class level? And how many be consistently ranked top 10? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, and to be clean as well. So, you know, it was kind of hard to argue what she was able to achieve. And so there came a point where I just decided I'm going to embrace Robin's way of competition as my, as my strategy for coaching. And when the, the success started to happen, you know, year after year, consistently winning national championships, you know, I, I would have been a fool to go back to, to, to my old way. Mm. 
That is really a beautiful story of your transition and, and I just, I think of that before Robin, it was destroy the competitors and I appreciate your um, acknowledgement that that's really a limited mindset for high performance. Let's talk more about that right here and just pause into that, Jason, because I think it's important for our listeners to really hear what that means because we come from a culture here in the West and, well, even on our planet for, you know, millennia here now. So it's it's about survival and, and competition and, and when we have this consciousness of separation, we're we're really trained and and what do I want to say? It's conditioned to compare, to contrast, to compete, to conflict, mm -hmm. to chaos. You know, it's like that's what this mindset, this understanding, this worldview of separation of of divide and conquer, destroy the competition and, and get angry and use it. That's what's brought us here so far, and the world is shifting and changing. So I would love to hear your reflections on that of as as a coach now, as a high performance coach. What does that really mean as a limited mindset for high performance, and what is the sustainable mindset? Yeah. Okay, great question. <clears throat> you know, um, I guess that you had on, what, maybe a couple months ago now, David Megacy, mm -hmm. uh, ex-NFL player, you know, just an incredible individual. He was the one who pointed out to me just the, the lunacy of how we approach competition. And that being that the Latin root word of competitor is competur, which, which actually means to strive together. And so in North America, we have taken, we have taken the word comp competition and competitor, and we've completely misconstrued it to mean something else, to our detriment. And this is where Robin understood this premise on a deep, deep level. Robin's mantra when she ran was, together we fly. And, and I used to think, you know, at first when I heard it, I thought, oh, geez, what a bunch of hooey. But then she explained it to me that she took it from geese, right? And if you want, I mean, I mean yes. <laughs> if you understand how Canadian geese work, they fly in a formation of a, of a triangle, right? And it's not just so they look neat when they go over, overhead. It's because... By flying in a formation of a triangle, they're able to draft, and they can fly further, and they can fly faster. And so Robin's belief was, together we fly, so if we all run faster, we all run faster. And, and it's as simple as that. You know, when I used to watch her before races, and she would hug her competitors and wish them well, it used to drive me crazy in the stands because I used to think, no, Rob, you've got to hate your competitors. You can't hug them. And yet, and yet that was not who she was. She truly respected and loved her competitors, not just because of the strategy, but also because that's just who she was. And so the byproduct of that was that she was able to last as long as she did. I believe with a combative mindset, when you have to crank yourself up, as I did, 
time after time, event after event, competition after competition, and work yourself into this state of rage where you hate your competitor. You know, that, that can only work for so long. And you can only maintain the intensity of that for so long as well. And But w when you're dealing with a strategy like Robbins, where the foundation, I mean, let's call a spade a spade, right? The foundation of that is love. And the more you engage in that, the more energy that you can derive from it. And, and, it, and it grows. It doesn't diminish. And so I know, f believe me, listen, I know that some of your listeners are going, what the hell is this guy on about? But believe me, I was that guy. Like, if I was listening to this interview, you know, 25 years ago, I would have turned it off by now. Because I was that guy who would have thought that this is absurd. Competition is about war. It's about a battle. And the goal is to win. You don't love your competitors. But now I get it. Now I understand it because... Because as much as I was the poster boy for the combative mindset, I have now gone 180. And, and, and I understand that when you embrace what I like to refer to as more of a holistic mindset, where you embrace your competition for who they are and you respect them and you admire them and you, as Robin points out, you, you, know, you, you compete with them, then that's a mindset that not only lasts longer, but ultimately is more powerful as a motivator. Yeah. You know, Jason, I am looking forward to talking about love and energy as motivation and this holistic mindset because it, it applies for everything. So we're going to take a quick break. We are talking with Jason Dorland, author of Chariots and Horses, Olympic athlete. We'll be right back. Do you get tired of styling your hair every day? And do you want a good hairstyle every day? Hi, I'm Sarah Schuster. I went on a website called inventnow.org, and after that, I decided to invent something too. Something called the Insta-Do. Just imagine, you just put it over your head like a helmet does, and you pick your hairstyle with the buttons on the side, and you can have instant hairstyle in seconds. People like it. People like Jeff Bart. I like it. And people like Kenneth. It's this helmet thing, and it fits over your head, and it's great. Thank you, for Kenneth. You should go to inventnow.org, and it could help you come up with your own invention. After all, look at me on the radio now. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions, or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Hey, Larry, mind if I sit down? Nope. Oh, this coffee tastes like uh, coffee. So what's going on? Not much. What's new? Not much. Okay, but can you please put the newspaper down while you say not much? What newspaper? This newspaper. Oh, dude, what happened to your face? I see one, two, Ow. three, four, five, six. Ow. Dude, what is Ow. this? Eleven pieces of toilet paper stuck to your face? I'm shaving in the dark to save energy. I'm helping the environment. Well, that's a dangerous way to help the environment. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Dude, there's an easier and safer way to help the environment without sacrificing yourself. Go green, go public. Take public transportation. It's good for the environment and you won't have to live behind a newspaper. Wow. But for now, put the newspaper back up. 
a message from the public transportation systems across the country. To learn more, visit publictransportation.org. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home, where I belong. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home, where I belong. It's always nice to come home. But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and listen to it again. Visit our website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also, stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. And come play with us and other global co-creatives over at goodofthewhole.com. Again, check it out, goodofthewhole.com. We are talking today with Jason Dorlin, author of Chariots and Horses, world-class athlete himself. And this is going to get good. Jason, I want to let them know, I think, that your website is jasondorlin.com. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Yes, jasondorlin.com. So you can find more information about Jason's coaching and, and all the other ventures that he's up to. He's doing some speaking and, and the books and lots of good stuff. So a new book is coming out in the spring. Go to his website, jasondorlin.com. Sign up for his email list and, and watch for that book. It will be a good one. This conversation is going to get good now, Jason, because... You brought up that L word, love, and competition, <laughs> and you also brought up the energy word, and, you know, even not just athletes that turn this show off by now and go, you guys are crazy, but I'm also thinking about executives. As you're coaching, you know, really high-performing executives, artists, all kinds of other people, um, that's not the typical mindset, and I, I love the... One example that you gave in that same chapter that I love about Robin is she was talking about that one race when you thought she was ridiculous and you thought she was going to lose and you, you, you wanted her to get mad or humiliated about being next to last and you thought that's what propelled her to, to get silver in that race and she was talking about the energy from the crowd. Yeah. So what can you teach us about love and energy in performance? Well, before before that, I you know I just wanted to refer to what I thought was going to motivate her, which, which was the shame of of being in the position that she was, and and the embarrassment of experiencing of experiencing that. So, you know, from that, and and that is such a motivator that we experience at the work in at the workplace. We see it in yeah. sport all the time. We see it in coaching, parenting, you name it, and. 
shame is a is a huge part of of um of our so- social infrastructure in terms of how we coexist and how we motivate individuals to sort of get on with it and and I was no different shame had been a huge part of how I was coached um and uh, you know I'm ashamed I'm ashamed to admit it was it was a strategy that I then embraced so the fact that robin didn't even go down that road was um you know, to me said, okay, this person, this person's different. This person has another way of approaching this. And so when she first shared that idea of building off the energy of the crowd and the way people were reacting to her moving from second last to second, that she really just fed off that, um, that vibe, if you will, that was coming out of the stands. And, and again, back then, I thought it was hooey. Today, not so much because because I've seen athletes experience it. Um, I utilize it in my coaching practices, and um, again, it's become a strategy. How do you? So, thank you, Jason. So, you know, we can. You are associated with the Sports Energy and Consciousness Group as well. When we were talking about David Megacy, right? And a lot of really high performing athletes today are learning about this flow state and this right. new way of consciousness and 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 you brought up the love word and some people wouldn't think well that's what does that have to do with love that's not about this relationship love but there is this energy that that you're tapped into in your coaching i would love to hear you speak about this consciousness and how you've brought it in, you, you really are teaching a culture of compassion and, and love and empathy on teams instead of kill your enemy. This is a right. battle and a war. So how do you do that? How do you bring that into coaching? Well, I think, you know, for me, culture is the, it is the most difficult thing to change, right? Culture is the last thing to shift. But it, once you get it going, once you've built the culture you want, then the 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 ability for it to attract like-minded and for it to keep your your team and your business or whatever moving forward it's well worth the effort and you know you touched on it in the introduction you know the for me the love part and if the word bothers people or if they they get stumbled on that you can you know you can uh, there's lots of other words that you can sort of put in place if if you find that off-putting but you know i'm over it now i don't really care what people uh, think of it but you know it, it just stems from that first piece which is love for self and compassion for self and and i didn't have that you know when we when when I lost as an athlete, whether it was at, in the high, in high school or in university or what have what have you, the self um, mutilation, if you will, of the psyche was was brutal at times. But um, and and again, I use that as a way to motivate to come back stronger. But the the cost for that was a very short career and. Um, you know, and then the journey that I had post-Olympics. But it doesn't have to be like that, right? So for me, I would always um, encourage athletes to be compassionate with themselves when they underperformed. And, you know, the question that I always ask people is in that moment is, how can this be the best thing that ever happened to you? So to to try and switch to be um, 
defeat as just simply being information. So as opposed to making losing mean something, which far too many people do, just letting it be what it is, it's a result. And from that result, you can garner information to, to shift your process. So for me, it starts with, with, self, with love for self and, and creating a culture where people feel safe to, to really screw up. Because in my time, because losing had, came with the labels that it did, we never felt safe to lose. You know, as much as I liked winning, I hated losing more because because losing meant so much right it, it the label that came with it was too much for me so in many ways it wasn't that i raced to win it was that i raced to not lose mm. and when athletes get into that place when any sort of high performer per- performs from that place mentally and emotionally it's a limiting place from which to perform because anytime we have the angst of of, of not wanting to screw up we're more apt to screw up but when we have the freedom to fail, we are less, less apt to fail. And I know for many people that's sort of a paradox, but, but it's, it's true. If you can create a culture where people feel okay with having a day of underperforming, then they're less likely to have days of underperforming. I just want to pause right there, Jason, because yeah. I think that's fascinating before we move on to other things that you that you have learned and that you teach, but that I just want to <laughs> reflect right here in the book, before you really went through this transformation of consciousness, you were, you didn't even consider yourself a world-class athlete. You were either a winner or a loser. Yeah. And then, and then you were really training to not lose. And your words that you've just shared with our listeners and myself here is, underperformed and how gentle that feels I mean that just feels safe just like you said it creates a culture of safety that I can explore all of me and sometimes I underperform and sometimes I do amazing things and isn't that fun (laughs) it's so different than win or lose you were really black and white and harsh with yourself and that was the cool thing about Robin, right, was that she, she never got pissed off when she lost. When she lost, it was simply information, right? It was, okay, so what do I need to change in my training or in my preparation? She never made it mean anything. Whereas my world, when I lost, holy smokes, it was, <laughs> you know, that hung around my neck until my next race where I was able to hopefully undo that. Mm. But but not with Robin. And and now I see, again, I see the strategy in that, right? So when, when, we see, when, we, when we just have that safety to simply explore our potential, we're more apt to discover a higher potential. And, uh, and it really comes down to that. But, but in order for people to, to, to discover their highest potential, there has to be a safe culture. It, it's just, it's... It's essential, period. Yeah. So you started with really the self-compassion, the self-love, the self-acceptance. And that begins this really finding ourselves within this culture. If you don't have that, you really, you can't create this culture with individuals. So then what comes next? What comes next? Just to touch on what you said there, that's perfect, is that 
and the reason being is because it um, if you're always chasing that win, you know, it's never enough, right? Mm-hmm. There's always the chase, and I was a chaser. So because I thought that if I won an Olympic medal, it would change my life for the better, right? I'd be happy, I'd f- be fulfilled, I'd, you know, all these wonderful things would come into my life, but we both know it doesn't work that way. If you're not happy before the race, you're not, you're certainly not going to be happy afterwards. And, and you can look to so many athletes who win Olympic gold medals and still struggle with transition because, because that medal didn't bring them what they thought. So that speaks to the second one, which is love for the endeavor, right? So, the reason we do what we do has to be grounded in love. If we do things because of what we think they will bring us or how they think they will make us feel, then that's a form of motivation. It is, but it's an extrinsic form of motivation. And again, extrinsic motivation works. Carrots and sticks work, period. However, it's a limited form of motivation. When we do things because because we love how we feel when we do them, that's a more powerful and sustainable form of motivation. And so what I do with the people that I work with is to try and allow them to discover the love for their endeavor. Because when they show up to train or when they show up to work or or whatever it is they do, because it just simply makes them feel good, that's a really powerful motivator. And the performances that can come from that are are limitless i think and so whereas if you have an athlete who is is motivated to win because they want to be a winner again it can work and it does work and i won't argue ever that it doesn't but it's a limited form of motivation so that those are the first two you know i just want to love for the endeavor yeah jason as a as a product of this really athletic family that loved this sport did you love the sport i think initially you know and, and i and you know don't get me wrong it's it's uh, my parents did not push me or or instill that in me at all if anything when i look back you know i sort of think they could have encouraged me a little more but um so this was all self-inflicted right and mm-hmm. and it was stuff that i picked up through uh, through other athletes and from coaches and and, and it's the way I construed it in my mind. So I, I just think, um, you know, the more, the more we're able to um, recognize that as young athletes, when their journey starts out in a win-at-all-costs environment, as, as mine did, um, you know, often that world can translate into adulthood and um and i see it all the time in my coaching so um you know let's face it some of the most insecure people you'll ever want to meet are athletes and and i should know yeah part of that part of why that's actually good (laughs) is because it's an incredible driving force because they are driven to garner worth they're driven to hear people say, wow, you're good enough, or wow, you matter, because goodness knows they're not saying it to themselves. So from a young age, they are driven 
to 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 have that moment of of somebody else patting them on the back, and then and then that just continues through life, right? When they leave sport, it then becomes, well, I be, I'll become an entrepreneur and I'll make a ton of money and and then I'll be worthy. And but like I said before, when you chase, you're you're starting the game thinking that you have a void to fill. Yeah. But you never fill it. Never. Yeah, thank you. Great advice right there. I love that. And then this this second step of love of the endeavor does also again applies to the athlete, but it goes out to artists, all kinds of performers and and entrepreneurs, business people. It's it, you've got to love what you do. So I love that step. I love that yeah. step. Thanks. What's next? Well, you know, for for me, it's a love for team, right? So mm. it's interesting. What at the last school where I coached, um, you know, when when I got there, there were, you know, fair enough. That there was a bit of a reputation that came with me because I had been successful at a previous school, and so a number of athletes came to the school, this new school, in the hopes of rowing in the crew that I was coaching. And I said, look, I, I get it. I understand that you've come here in the hopes of, of having some success, maybe winning a national championship and, and then potentially garnering a, a, um, you know, a scholarship to an American school. And, and I get it. And that's all fine. But by the time we're done, that won't matter anymore. You know, when you get into the boat, when you show up at the beginning of a race because it matters more to you that you show up and support your teammates than it does that 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 you have that that you win when we have that sort of culture then we've arrived that then that's when we're going to start to do some pretty cool things so and over the course of 10 months we were able to shift that they were able to realize well I came here because I thought I wanted all these things for me but what I've learned is, by contributing to the to the greater good of the team, I actually set myself up to 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 reach all the goals that I came here with. And again, I know that sounds like a paradox, but it's true. So when athletes show up for their team first, you know what they wanted for themselves just sort of comes along, right? It it, it kind of happens. But if you if you have a team full of individuals who simply want what they want for themselves, they're never going to be a team. And so creating that sense of contributing to a greater good, again, it's an essential piece because it speaks to the, how we are naturally wired. We are naturally wired to want to contribute to something bigger than we are. So when you're on a team or when you're in a company and you feel drawn to want to perform because it contributes to something bigger than you that that again that comes back to a very powerful form of motivation yeah beautiful i love that advice because that again is universal i know your story is so focused from from your experience of life and athletics and where you're at but really this is Really good stuff, good medicine for all of us in in life and this world right now. Now, I know there's one more, and, and I want to make sure 
Well, I'm assuming there's one more because I yep. can't wait to hear you say, love your competitor yeah. is what I'm assuming is next. It is, and love for the competition. And we, you know, we've touched on that through Robin, right? That was, that was just kind of her way. When, when you, you see yourself as racing or competing with people as opposed to against, then again, you're able to compete at a higher level, right? When the focus is on defeating your competition, the focus is on the wrong thing. So when you distract yourselves by focusing on how everyone around you is doing, you're not focused on the things that you can control. And a big part of my message is control the controllables. Well, you have no control over how your competition shows up. But you do have a control over how you show up. So, you know, put your energy there. And again, you'll get the performance you deserve. So, um yeah, it, and again, I look back at it now, and it's just simple now. Now I just see it as all making sense. But on so many levels, it flies in the face of what we are taught in Western culture. Yeah, absolutely, to love your competitor. I mean, imagine just even politics right now. <laughs> and, like, our world of politics, and it's not just um, this Western world right now, It's but imagine what would happen if we followed your prescription here i mean really it's it's powerful and the things we can do to transform our culture is limitless i love that yeah, yeah well just just put this you know just, let's call it a template right just put this template over top of so many parts of our world right now yeah. and number one it points out the dysfunction that exists on so many levels political economic, environment, I mean, you name it, right? So much of what we do in the world is dysfunction. Let's face it. So put this template over it, start to start to engage and employ this methodology and the the potential for transformation. Wow. I, I mean, that's what excites me, right? I mean, yeah, I'm a competitive guy. Don't get me wrong. I love success and I love winning, but what makes me what excites me about coaching isn't the winning and if it was just about winning i would have got bored years ago what excites me about coaching is watching people do stuff they never thought they could like mm. that's that's exciting that's something to get out of bed for every morning so but we are so conditioned as young children to chase right we are taught to chase and yeah. And it is such a crazy-making um, way of raising our, our young people that it, you know, <laughs> anyway, we won't go down there. But it's it's such a limited way to, uh, to, to sort of condition our children to go through life. Yeah. You this will whole... be happy when, you know, that, that's crazy. Yeah, chase, chase, chase. It really is a paradigm shift for all of yeah. us, and it's yeah. a it's a just really an important shift in consciousness, and it and it's so simple. So I'm going to ask you. We have about five minutes left yeah. in the show, and I'm just curious then because I I like to talk about visioning this new world into being, and we're talking about it right now, right? Creating yeah. a positive future and shifting the culture and serving this greater good. And you talk about serving the greater good of the team. I like to talk about serving the greater good of the whole. So from your perspective, what is one simple shift our listeners can make today, right here and now, that would help assist them to serve the greater good of the team or the whole? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, one of the big things that I focus on with the people I work with is is the being part, right? Uh, it's the human being, not the human doing. And so much of our world is based on what we do, right? And very little of our dialogue is is built around who we are and who we be in the moment. And, you know, use, for example, this term busy. Part of the work I do is with uh, a group called Roy Group, and um, we go in and do some leadership stuff with teams. And, and th there's a really cool quote in the work that we do. It's called, busy is for idiots. And I'll tell you, it raises a few eyebrows because it, it gets people who define themselves by being busy to really look at, at their life and really look at how they engage in their day-to-day -day activities. I mean, when you... When you run into a friend or you phone a family member and you ask, how have you been? And they say, oh, I'm busy. I'm doing this and that. And you kind of go, well, that's not what I asked you. I've, I just asked you, how have you been? Not what, what are you doing? And, and we are so conditioned to tell people what we're doing because, because so many of us wear that busyness as a badge. I'm important because I'm busy. So, you know, let's make this, let's make this quick. And, and I think we, we need to really step back and look at that and that our work is in our being. And that's what I always say to people, athletes, executives, right across the gamut. That's your work. You know, I've been, I've, I've been effective as a rowing coach, not because I know more about rowing than any other coach or not because we use better equipment. It's because I focus on the being of the athletes. That's why they're so successful consistent is because that's where we work we do work around their being we do work around who they are and then that work allows them to do to row to train to race on a higher level and so i think we need to step back and recognize our true work our work isn't doing more our work isn't necessarily doing different our work is in asking us who we are and who we be and then when we get that rejigged, then we can focus on what needs to be done. Beautiful. Wow, beautiful. Jason, your words have inspired me. I know they're inspiring all those listeners out there that have tuned in. So thank you so much for, number one, being here with us, but also for your work in the world. You know, this is really some beautiful seeds for us to plant everywhere in our consciousness thank you for joining us today yes yeah, my pleasure uh, I, I it was a great conversation and i really appreciate that so thank you oh you're welcome i enjoyed the conversation too and listeners i just want to remind you we've been visiting with jason dorland author of chariots and horses and the upcoming book six days away and you can find out so much more about jason and his work at jasondorland.com that's j-a-s-o-n D-O-R-L-A-N-D. And remember, after this beautiful conversation together, we create so many beautiful connections and connecting for the greater good of the whole. So until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.